This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Friday morning from 10 to 11 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. I am so delighted that the Missouri Arts Council has continued their featured artist program past the initial pilot period. As each month we take our arts tour around Missouri, we get to meet such a variety of artistic talent. For any artists interested in being featured, it is a super easy process. Just go to the MissouriArtsCouncil.org website, click on the Featured Artist Program, and then on the Artist Application Form. Plus, selected artists receive a $300 stipend. Today, we have stops in Kansas City, Cape Girardeau, St. Louis, and then home to Columbia. So, let's head out. I have met Kansas City-based award-winning artist Genevieve Flynn several times over the past decade when she was both juror and awards judge for multiple Art in the Park festivals. I always thought of her as a precious metals jeweler, but that, I now realise, was a huge understatement for her oeuvre also encompasses sculptural and heirloom works, which reflect her 40-plus years of mastery of the noble metals. She has studied ancient metal techniques with European masters, won multiple awards and recognition for her works, has been commissioned to create works for well-known sporting and musical personalities, draws students from across the country to her Kansas City studio, and for the next 15 minutes, we get her all to ourselves. Genevieve Flynn, how lovely to have you on the show. Diana, it is so great to speak with you again. What an honor and privilege to be able to do this radio program. Well, as radio is an hour or rather than a visual media, we should probably start with having you give us a description of your work, your elevator speech about your work. Okay. I am trained as a goldsmith, but I segued into silversmithing when I went into the American Craft Council shows years ago. My work is mostly sterling silver or argentium silver that is handmade, hand-raised. I do an ancient metals technique called chasing and repousse, which creates a three-dimensional design in the metal. So mostly what I'm working on now are vessels, like small teapots, hollowware pieces such as bowls, or I do some art jewelry, but mostly in the small sculptural range. I'm curious about this. You say you segued into silversmithing. You say on your website, I think, or somewhere that your work evolved from being a goldsmith to a silversmith. So I wondered why going to silver is an act of evolvement. It was a conscious decision because right when I hit the craft circuit in the 80s, the market had crashed and The marketing had changed with the buyers that were coming through because I was dealing with nothing but wholesale buyers. I didn't sell retail. And the buyers were looking for a little bit lower end product. I was also juggling the ideas of doing more sculptural tabletop pieces. And to do things in gold was cost prohibitive because my work was done on speculation. I made things in hopes of selling them. Is silver harder to work with or are they equally complex? Well, they're equally complex. Silver is easier in the respect of the hardness of the metal. 
It softens up very easily through heating. Gold is a wonderful metal to work in, but it is harder to work with. And it heats very differently. It's not a good conductor of heat, whereas silver is. Hmm. Your work is almost always reflective of nature. You have gorgeous jewellery and sculptural pieces with acorns and beetles and calla lilies, moths and insects. And you write about your love for both the Art Nouveau and Art Deco forms. What is it you love about those art movements in relation to your work? Specifically to the Art Nouveau, I love the sinuous lines that the Nouveau pieces have always depicted. Clearly, the nature has always been in my work. And I always have this funny little side that comes out, which is a very geometric piece that comes out every now and then, which doesn't go with any of my work. (laughs) But that I love the Art Deco feel. And so, you know, I just I stopped fighting those things of saying, Oh, no, I don't I can't do that. Because that doesn't go with anything else. I go with it. And there it is. Because you're working with such expensive materials, I'm guessing that you are a very meticulous planner before you set out. Do you ever just look at a piece of metal and think, well, let's just see where it goes? (laughs) I was smiling as you said that because (laughs) the way I talk about my work, I am not a meticulous planner. I fly by the seat of my (laughs) pants. I I don't have an art background. I didn't go to college. I'm pretty much self-taught. I've taught myself how to draw as well as I draw. And I can do a very simple sketch and have an idea of what I want to do. My bonus in my life is that I can visualize it. And I know I have the metals technique so I can jump into it full swing. And generally, my pieces come out similar to what I was thinking. But they always evolve as I work, which I think for me is really the beauty of, of how I work. I want to touch on a couple of the sculptural works you have on your website. The first one is called The Release Sculpture, which is an incredibly playful and imaginary creature, but also representative of you letting go of a feeling you had held on to for many years. Describe that work for us and and what it means to you. Wow, that little guy, that's one of those um, pieces that came out that is just really not like a lot of my work, but it's beautiful and I love it. It's a a small sculptural piece made out of silver and gold. I was approached to be in a a women's show here in Kansas City at Avila College, and it had a one-word title, and release was the title. And I had been grappling with something that had happened to me years prior and now many years, and I was trying to let go of it, and I was really having a hard time, and it was very prickly feeling, and it was very um, sad. And so I did this little sea creature, kind of. It's got three legs that are cold-forged silver wires, and the body of the creature is a sphere. It's two parts of a domed piece. The top piece has lots of silver spikes on it, but up against the shell of the creature is 24 karat gold granules that have been fused on, but these spikes are exploding out of the surface of the lid. And from it's hinged, and inside there's a big tongue that comes out that's sterling silver forged, and it has a beautiful reposé leaf at the end of it. And you can look at it as it grabbing it and taking it in or letting it go. And so that was, that was my, my piece. 
And was it cathartic for you? Yeah, but you know, it really didn't let, I didn't let go of it. You know, I didn't let go of that silly accusation that had been haunting me for many years. I have since. It's like, oh, forget that. That's not even <laughs> worth it, you know. But yeah, I, it took me a while to process it. And I've noticed in my life, I'm one of these that I really have to listen to what's happening and then let it go for a while before I can get through it. I can identify with that. Another work that stood out for me was The Snake, because for you, this is a work that encapsulates your political opinion and frustrations. Tell us a little bit about The Snake. Yes, that <laughs> that one I was working on during the previous president's campaign. And um, I heard him speak about, there's a um, fable about the snake where some farmer goes out, it's cold, the snake seems frozen, the farmer picks it up and brings it in and in the end the snake bites him and kills him. And so I was doing a rattlesnake vase and it, it's fairly, fairly good size. And I got to thinking about all of that and what was happening in our country and in our world. And I thought this is just perfect because, again, this one went into a regional exhibition here in Kansas City. And um, so that was put into my statement about my work. And it, it's made out, of, it's all copper sitting on top of a, a rock. And it's a rattlesnake. And he's really beautiful, but some people get real creeped out about things like that. <laughs> He is beautiful. So metalsmithing, I mean, it's an ancient skill. And of course, we've been making jewelry for ourselves since the Iron Age. But like any skill, there's the basic set of knowledge and then an endless array of advanced and ancient techniques. And you've studied with so many people and with European masters. And I'm curious, what have been for you some of the most significant aha moments? Well, you know, I've studied with two reposé masters the first one was really wonderful to study with. I came back to my studio and attempted to do the things that I was taught. And I don't think I was ready to receive his information. And so the next person that I, I worked with was an Italian master. And I was wide open. And when he started teaching, I just absorbed everything. And it truly was one of those aha moments of, oh, my goodness, this is what I want to be doing. And this is how I need to do it. Because his style resonated with me. And we had a, a have a good relationship. I would have him come into the studio to teach classes. But that was, I think that was a big revelation for me. And that was back in the early 2000s, I think. So you've mentioned repose a couple of times. Can you explain what that is? Yes, it is the raising of metal to create dimensionality to it. And so if you look on my website and you see my vessels, all of them have been embellished with the technique of reposé. So what I do, I draw my design on the backside of my metal in reverse. I have small steel punches, for lack of a better word, and a small chasing hammer that I push the metal towards the front to create a puffy shape. And then I flip it over and fill that void in the back with pitch or tar-like material and because it allows the punch not to collapse 
that hollow area. And then I go into the front side and I chase it. And the, the tools for repose are punches that push metal and stretch metal. The chasing tools are detailing tools. That's the best way I can describe it. So what else is on your skills wish list at this point? I mean, you have so many skills. Are there still things that you think, <laughs> oh, I really want to learn this? You know, I have something in the making. I haven't had a chance to do anything, but I'm going to, going to start working in some glass and I want to do the pot de verre process. And I started on it last year, year and a half ago, and I had to get a kiln and all that was a process. And then the show came up that I'm currently working towards. And so I've not been able to work in the glass as much as I want, but I took a class at Corning Glass in Corning, New York. And so I'm kind of patiently waiting here in the studio. So I have blocks of time because it's an immense process. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. It's perfecting my technique and understanding the kiln. So I'm really excited because I want to be able to incorporate those glass pieces in with my metal. So you teach classes at your studio in Kansas City and also you have masters come in to teach students. How have you dealt with COVID during that time? Are you doing everything online or are are you still having just smaller classes? How has that worked for you? Initially, we just all shut down and then the online teaching came around, but I didn't have anybody set up last year that I couldn't move to 2021. And so the teacher that was supposed to be here last May is coming in the 1st of October. And um, I haven't done any of the online classes with people. I've offered it. I have scaled back my personal teaching classes to one or two people at the most. And I'm requiring people to wear masks and now to be vaccinated because of my situation at home where my husband is immunocompromised. Mm. And I just can't take that risk. Right. You mentioned you're working towards a show. What have you got coming up? I have the Brookside Art Annual that starts September 17th and runs through the 19th. But I also have an online show, which makes it very easy. I don't have to have works everywhere in Boston or online through the Society of Arts and Crafts, which opens up September 10th through October 31st. Okay. Well, you can see the jewellery and sculptural work of Genevieve Flynn on her website at Genevieve Flynn with a double N dot com. And for anyone interested in taking a workshop, you can also find details of her upcoming classes. And as Genevieve just said, you can see her work in person at the Brookside Art Fair in Kansas City that runs from September the 17th to the 19th. Genevieve, thank you so much for such a lovely chat this morning. Thank you so much, Diana. The Latin phrase per adua ad astra means through struggle to the stars and is a succinct way of summing up the career of my next guest this morning, the artist, author, speaker and entrepreneur Malcolm McRae. Now in his early 40s, his career started as a young teenager when the only thing between Malcolm and starvation were his airbrush painting skills. But by the age of 18, necessity, determination and the love of art had given him the drive to open his own art shop and create a six-figure income. 
Today, he travels all over the country teaching airbrushing classes, inspiring young artists, and giving motivational talks. He's also a published author, was awarded the 2020 Change Maker of the Year Award by Southeast Missouri's Bee Magazine, and last year, during the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, was commissioned by AT&T to produce two large public murals that represent social justice. His core belief is that art truly has the opportunity and power to to change lives. And I am so delighted that I get to chat with him this morning. Malcolm McRae, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. There is so much from the life and times of Malcolm McRae that we could talk about for the next 15 minutes. So I'm going to have to make some hard choices. I definitely want to talk about your fabulous art bus and your nonprofit organization, Pollination Station. But let's start with a little background on how you got your name, Malcolm Airbrush Assassin McRae. Wow. So that name was given to me. I've been doing airbrushing now for over 20 years now. And um, I started off as a kid uh, airbrushing on the street corner um, T-shirts. And in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I was born and raised, and I kind of moved around a little bit, that name was kind of given to me because people were always bringing me stuff to airbrush. And they were like, man, you you assassinating it, man, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, everything from uh, cars to clothing to murals to tennis shoes, uh, roughly around 11 to 12 years old, that's kind of like what I dove into as far as a young creative individual. So that's kind of like how the name, name kind of came to me. Somebody was like, man, you an assassin with that airbrush. So I stuck. <laughs> airbrush assassin. You describe your art as freedom art. Tell us what that means to you. For me, art has been a tool to um, express myself creatively, but also uh, personally as well. So, you know, I grew up in a pretty rough kind of environment. Um, my mom and my dad raised us to be very strong minded. But, you know, we grew up in a poverty kind of stricken environments. And even though my parents worked it was just always things kind of going on in different environments when you're kind of dealing with poverty. So you tend to kind of have tension and stress and also a lot of uh, trauma. And for me, art has always been a tool to not only express myself, but to deal with different things that might be difficult just in life. So my work is built around being free to express yourself, be free to live your life built around your own standards and be free to be able to share your gift with the world. So my art is uh, kind of like a snapshot of that. Well, back in 2013, you published your memoir called To Live, To Create, To Inspire, How Art Saved My Life. And this is the message you take to communities and at-risk youth all over the country about how you overcame poverty in an unforgiving environment. But not every at-risk child has your art skills. And I wonder at what moment in sharing your story do you see the light bulb moments in your young audiences? All the time. I devote a large period of time engaging with young people because through my life I have always had mentors and people who have given me opportunities to, to learn and opportunities to express myself and opportunities to grow. Um, so my my success is built around the foundation of having great mentors and great people in my life that shared and helped me to be able to develop as an artist, as a, a black man, as an entrepreneur and so on. So 
uh, young people have always been very powerful. I'm a father as well. I have a, a daughter that's uh, 19 in college now. But young people are the future. I started off my career very, very young. I'm 40 now. But as a young kid, people didn't take me serious. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I remember that feeling of wanting to do my thing and airbrush and training, but the political structure of just being a kid, you know, adults didn't take me serious. So when I see young people, I'm always um, I'm always eager to be able to learn from them because one of the things that I realized is that dealing with and working with young people, you kind of build a bond immediately. Either they like you or they don't like you <laughs> and a trust kind of thing is uh, a tool that I use to communicate. So for me, because also I run into a lot of adults and I just remember growing up, it was like people were always telling me you can't make a, a living as an artist. So when I talk to young people, my whole number one goal is the book and the memoir was a personal testimony and a tool for me to heal and also an opportunity for me to have a tool to share with others to let them know, hey, I went through different things in life. My mom passed when I was young, went through different trials and tribulations. But if I was able to make it through, then you're able to make it through. So whatever that craft is, whatever that skill is, whatever that talent, I believe we're all born with a talent. And the sooner that we figure what that talent is, the sooner that we can be more self-sustaining and more happier in life. Well, you, as I said, you travel all over the country. And I think uh, you said somewhere that you really don't like air travel. And so you came up with the idea of the Pollination Station Art Bus. So I think back in 2019, is it? You founded a 501c3 nonprofit called Pollination Station. And so let's start off with the organization itself before we get to the bus that moves you around the country, because I just love that story. What, what need did you see that the Pollination Station could meet? So I was getting calls from all over the country from schools and organizations. I deal with a lot of schools that are like Title I schools or have, you know, get public funding or a lot of public schools that don't have funding to bring arts in. One of the things that happened through education is the arts got cut immediately. So you might go to certain schools where they might have full sports, but they don't have any art programs. So the tool was to, as I was traveling, going into talking to students, I realized the most effective way to reach students is to reach teachers. So I started empowering teachers. And through that structure, I realized that I needed to create a blueprint to be able to help individuals, teachers, young people, entrepreneurs from a major, a bigger kind of like scale. And I was kind of just looking for a holistic approach of dealing with this because I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I know you can have a great idea, but if you don't have the right uh, infrastructure, then it's hard to facilitate your idea. So I was outside one day and um, I'm really a nature lover and I was it was a, a butterfly that started to come around me. And if you go to my Instagram page or anything, you can see for some reason insects come towards me. <laughs> some of them bite, but some of them just want to play. So it was kind of like this insect or this butterfly was telling me like, hey, I'm a pollinator. Here's a blueprint. And I watched it go into a flower. And it took some of the nectar, but some pollen fell onto his skin. And as I do start doing more and more research about the earth and pollinators, I was like, yo, this is a sustainable infrastructure. We're talking about Mother Earth. I said, you know, we all are pollinators as human beings, um, pollinating, giving, changing, uh, engaging with individuals on an everyday level. So if we can just share some positivity using art 
using creativity as a tool. Um, we can pollinate this whole globe with positivity using art and creativity. So that's how the blueprint came to life. From there, literally, I started to study nature and pollinators and how you know we, fruit and seeds and all of those things come from the pollinators and that circle of life so i built the whole non-profit around that that circle of life of going into areas that might not have opportunities might not have financial uh, resources coming in doing programs using art because art is one of the things that i realized that is non-threatening like everybody wants to paint you know you can get people that might be from political sides and older and young people or different people from different races but if you put a paintbrush in their hand and give them this opportunity to create People have a tendency to go into being a child again. So the Pollination uh, Station, the nonprofit, was built around three things, creating, sharing, and then growing. And those three things incorporate, you know, the whole structure of the nonprofit. So at what point did you think, I know, I'll buy a 40-foot MCI coach bus and convert it into an art bus that I'll also live on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things like any artist to tell you that it's very difficult to find space for artists. So even whether you're living in a country town or whether you're living in a, a big city, like creative space and like affordable space, um, you know, is just very difficult. So I started to think um, specifically like Cape Girardeau, Jackson, that kind of area in southern Illinois. You know, as an artist, it was still very difficult for me to be able to find studio space and space to live consistently. So, you know, I looked at real estate numerous times and there were uh, just some situations that were just making it very difficult to obtain a piece of property. So I was thinking and it was like, okay, I had a bus. This is not my first bus. When I was about (laughs) 21 years old, 22 years old, I had this idea and I bought the first MCI bus off of eBay, me and some friends, and we toured around and I did airbrushing and festivals. But this time I really needed the bus because it was kind of fulfilling a couple of different problems that I was having. First of all, I'm a family man. I was flying all across the country doing projects and uh, was away from my wife and my daughter and my family. And then secondly, I couldn't bring all of the equipment with me because if I was doing a big mural on a basketball court or just a major piece of art and I wanted the community to get involved, I would have to have an opportunity to to take a lot of equipment. So through the ups and downs of just uh, thinking it out and following Craigslist and Facebook looking for the right bus, I didn't even tell my wife this. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a bus and then for her birthday, I like, sprung this like oh guess what we're gonna i got a surprise for you so i have a video on our youtube page that shows like when she's the first time her seeing the bus and we converted it i already kind of had a blueprint and we took the time to convert it and then with some community help been able to raise some funds to be able to get it you know just some 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 work that we needed to get done on it and from there we uh last year we actually had like a full tour planned and then COVID came and we had to restructure some things. So now, you know, we're, we're back on the road again and uh, facilitating and pollinating spaces all over the country. What's your miles per gallon in that bus? On a high end is seven, on a low end, five. Oh, man. <laughs> so we normally plan for five, you know. So this bus was built to um, have 47 passengers that range anywhere from 100 to a couple hundred pounds. And then um, all their luggage as well. So we took all of the seats out. And there's no way we can ever max out the capacity. 
because, um, you know, this thing was meant to be on the road 365 days of the year. So, you have a lovely video on your website of the conversion process, and it is a, it's a, it's a swanky bus. I mean, you've got a nice living <laughs> conditions. But as well as all the travel around the country, you are also at the start of a five-year project in your own community of Cape Girardeau titled Pollinate Cape, which is an interactive experience to uplift the local community. Before we close, just tell us a little bit about that project. Pollinate Cape is a project that's like a blueprint of um, a major bigger projects that we got coming up. So the bigger projects is, is called Pollinate the States. And as we're coming into different um, states, we're going to be focusing in on different locations that we're going to be pollinating. So Pollinate Cape, of course, that's the town that I, I love and I really wanted to do something for Cape Girardeau. And I'm using, um, like again, Mother Nature as a blueprint to just kind of create a hub of creativity. And one of the biggest um, walls in Cape Girardeau is the Mississippi uh, flood wall that's downtown. And when I first came to this area, I really had a vision to I wanted to paint on this wall um, really, really, really bad. But throughout the years, it took about 10 years to finally get the city, get everybody uh, together to have an opportunity to use this wall as a tool to promote creativity in Cape Girardeau. So there's going to be numerous locations all through Cape Girardeau. If you haven't been through Cape Girardeau, it's a beautiful town. We want to also use it as an opportunity to not only uplift the spirits of individuals who live in Cape, but also get visitors and different people coming through the area because it's a beautiful uh, area and with art and creativity gives us an opportunity to kind of help some of the small businesses as well. So it's a win-win situation for the city. Um, it's a win-win situation for Cape Girardeau and all of the residents. And the piece of art that we started off with is on the flood wall called A Wish of Hope. And it is an image of a young girl of color. And um, she has like a dandelion and she's blowing the seeds. And they represent young people, the future, and then also the hope and the seeds of one day, you know, those seeds become plants and constantly are pollinating and helping creativity and art and success grow in Cape Girardeau. So that's pretty much what it is in a nutshell. <laughs> well, Malcolm McRae's website is a veritable rabbit hole of art, story, inspiration, <laughs> videos and images. And so if you visit MalcolmMcRae.com, just know that it might be a while before you emerge. Malcolm, I love the Pollination Station and I wish you safe and creative travels as you spend the next few years driving all around the United States. I do hope you come to Columbia one day and thank you so much for making time to chat this morning. Thank you very much and you have a blessed day. I don't think I have ever been only one degree of separation from Aretha Franklin, but thanks to jazz singer Denise Times, I am now. Denise was not only handpicked by the Queen of Soul to perform for her 72nd birthday party, but she's also toured Paris with David Sanborn, performed with Wynton Marsalis, sung at the White House and sung for two more queens, the Queen of Thailand and my own monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, who she serenaded at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. She is an amazing eight-time recipient of the St. Louis Black Repertory Company's Woody Award for both musicals and drama. And if that weren't already enough, she is also founder and director of the Mildred Times Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research and the daughter of the legendary St. Louis radio host, Lou Father Times. And amazingly, she is my guest this morning, Denise Times. What a pleasure to say welcome to Speaking of the Arts. 
Thank you, Diana. Good morning. So I'm going to start with a question that I might usually end with, but with such an incredible list of performance audiences, and I only listed a handful in my introduction, I'm curious, who could possibly still be on your bucket list? (laughs) I think just being able to perform before a crowd of thousands and thousands of people, whether it be in the States or Europe, that is my ultimate goal and dream right now, just to really be able to perform in front of a great deal of people. And some of that is almost going to come true this Sunday at the Fox Theater as I open up for a wonderful uh, national recording artist by the name of Layla Hathaway, who is the daughter of the late Donnie Hathaway at the Fox Theater here in St. Louis. So I'm absolutely looking forward to that and many more to come. Would you consider singing the national anthem to a stadium full of football fans to be thousands of audience that you'd like to sing for? I did it at a baseball game, but not a football game. It's just that I want the consistency of that, you know? I've done things like that here and there, but it's like to be able to do it, you know, at least three times or four times a week would be awesome. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) I know that because your dad was a legendary radio broadcaster, you had met Aretha Franklin and many other great singers as a child. So you did already know her, but how did it feel to stand on the stage in front of the Queen of Soul and sing for her? Absolutely amazing and very nervous <laughs> at the same time. I'm sure she was very gracious. She was. So when you think back over your four-decade career, what performances really stand out for you? Besides Aretha Franklin, obviously. Diana, every performance is a great performance for me. Every opportunity that I have to give the gift that God has so graciously given to me, each event, each opportunity is uh, just as equally as wonderful as the one before it and the one to come. And so I really don't itemize it or put it in a category. It's just all wonderful to be able to perform and sing anytime. What makes a good audience for you? Oh, one that will talk back to me and respond to the music and just a bunch of applause and shouts and screaming and yes, girl, and sing that song, you know. (laughs) That's different from classical concerts where everybody's supposed to sit very quietly and only clap when they're meant to clap. Correct. We'll have none of that. (laughs) You credit your mum with being the one who not only recognised that you had a talent for singing, but also began opening doors for you. So take us back to seven-year-old Denise. Were you the child who was constantly singing to your hairbrush and giving living room performances to your family? Or were you just constantly singing and humming to yourself? What are your memories of song in your early childhood? going to make me cry. I absolutely was singing my entire childhood. I can't tell you if I had a quarter for every time my mom would say, be quiet, or my (laughs) grandmother would tell me, hush. And especially when I was washing the dishes, Diana, because I would sing while I was washing the dishes, and I would always imagine myself on the Johnny Carson show at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was so intrigued with the Johnny Carson show. So I would visualize myself being on the Johnny Carson show, or I would visualize myself, that little girl dancing with Danny Kaye at the end of his show. 
So, um, yeah, uh, childhood, definitely a lot of singing. Yeah. What were the songs that you liked singing as a child? Jazz songs then? or No, I was definitely Aretha Franklin, Ain't No Way, and Respect, and all of the popular tunes that made Aretha the wonderful star that she is. So had you already met her by the time you were singing her songs, or were you singing her songs and then there she was in your living room one day? I was already singing her songs, and then I met her. <laughs> what? I mean, what does a little girl say to Aretha Franklin? I mean, what? Were you just kind of struck dumb by her presence or were you super chatty with her? I think I was just struck down by her presence. I didn't <laughs> say anything. I just kept looking at her and she would tell my dad how pretty I was and everything. She was with Ted White at that time. And uh, he was more playful with me than she was. She was very quiet and laid back. So you had initially wanted to be a gospel singer, I believe. But then you write that you got polyps on your vocal cords and decided to switch course and learn how to sing without damaging your instrument. But I'm, I'm going to swerve into a little science here because I don't know a huge amount about what creates polyps. What do singers do wrong that creates them and how do you avoid it? So thank you for asking that because what I tell all the singers is that it doesn't matter what type of music you sing. If you're singing incorrectly, if you're breathing and everything is not right, you can develop polyps on your vocal cords. And if you're singing, you know, which gospel is very hard on the vocal cords, if you're not lubricating the vocal cords, if you're not warming up before you sing, all of those things can bring about vocal polyps. And so uh, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with the type of songs that you're singing. It just basically has a lot to do with vocal maintenance. So how do you get rid of them? Do you have to have an operation? I had to have them surgically removed. And at that now they're using laser. And at that time, the doctors were still using the knife, so to speak. But I had a very good doctor, yeah. So there was a possibility that you wouldn't sing again. I mean, was that a, a potential danger? Absolutely. That was. That was, yes. He said that. Yeah, but now they zap them with a laser and you're back up at it again, yeah. Jazz has been your great musical passion and you've toured the world and been compared to jazz legends like Ella Fitzgerald. And I'm, I'm always curious about the fickle nature of fame, why some people become household names and others who are absolutely equally, if not more talented, don't get the same recognition and spotlight. What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. Um, I've learned in this business, it's part of who you know. It is still part of being at the right place at the right time. It is also hard work and getting your information out there to people. And I often wonder, you know, about my career personally, when I hear a lot of people like Aretha Franklin and Clark Terry, who I work with, and David Sanborn say, why haven't we heard of you? And my response is, that's why I'm here with you today, <laughs> so that the world can hear about me. So I don't know. Sometimes it's kind of like theater. It's like, I don't know what people are looking for. It's a certain look. It's a certain sound. But it's amazing how some people who, uh, in my opinion, respectfully speaking, who are not as talented as some of my mm. peers and myself, you know, seem to make it in the business. That's a mystery still to me as well. Is it harder as a woman? Let me say this. I'm going to say for me, um, I think it was because I decided to to be a mom. And so that took mm -hmm. up, you know, some of my years. And it was either, am I going to be a diva 
or am I going to be a mother? And right. I chose to be a mother. And if I could get some diva things to happen in the midst of that, that's great. And that's how God blessed me with singing for the Queen of England and touring with David Sambor. And so all of that happened in the midst of being a doting mom. And so I'm not really sure if it's a, a female thing. You know, some of that plays a part in this business. It does. And it is harder for singers in the jazz world because a lot of musicians will just right out tell you, I don't want to play for singers. You know, some of it is is a little bit of that as well. I would like to think that it's because I put my career on hold to be a mother for my two beautiful children. Well, besides music, your other great passion is raising awareness and research money for pancreatic cancer, which took your mum's life back in 1997. Tell us a little bit about what some of your proudest achievements have been as the founder and executive director of the Mildred Times Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research. Thank you for that question. Partnering with Seitman Cancer Center, which is our main cancer research center here in St. Louis, um, there was a family, a young lady who was in her 40s. She had twin beautiful girls, and she was diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer. And for us to be able to help her with her tangible needs and to see her daughters through graduation and see them make the transition from high school to college and know that she is still getting the best of care through the help of the foundation. That's what we're about because we like to consider ourselves as a tangible foundation for those who have been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer so that they don't have to go through the hoops of getting funds or immediate needs taken care of by going through a whole lot of changes and and bureaucracy and hoops and all of that, you know, we're there to help patients with their immediate needs. Are you a national organization or really focused in St. Louis? We are focused in St. Louis and constantly working towards becoming a national organization. So final question, if you could whisper in the ear of your 18-year-old self, just starting out with your career and vocal training, not knowing what your future might hold, what would you tell her? That you are exactly where you're supposed to be and trust the process and keep putting God first in everything that you do. Well, let's go out with some music. This is Denise Times singing just a very short clip of The Very Thought of You. The very thought of you And I forget to do The little ordinary things That folk ought to do I'm living in A kind of daydream Though it may seem to be That's everything Ooh, 
the mirror. Beautiful. Well, Denise, your passion and talent is such an inspiration. And I thank you so much for taking the time to share a little bit about your life. I mean, a small clip of 40 plus years of being in the business. We could talk for three hours. Um, but thank you for being with us today. You can find out more about Denise and listen to her beautiful, seductively mellifluous voice via her website at Denise Times and that's spelt T-H-I-M-E-S denisetimes.com and you can also hear her if you're in St. Louis this weekend at the Fox Theatre on Sunday night. Thank you so much, Denise. Thank you, Diana. It is only a couple of months since Columbia artist David Spear was last on the show to talk about the blind Boone mural he painted on the building at 1000 North College Avenue. But I was delighted to see him on the Missouri Arts Council's list of September artists because it gives me a chance to talk to him more generally about his work and the life of an artist, how you make that work financially by developing a broader range of artistic roles and how you protect your work and artistic legacy. David, Spear, here we are again. Welcome back. Hi, it's nice to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, you are to many Columbia walls what Thomas Hart Benton is to the Capitol building, an artist whose work has a powerfully unique artistic voice and is synonymous with Addison's and Sophia restaurants, as well as the Wabash Station, Boone Hospital and several other walls. But I'm guessing that that stamp of artistic voice can be both a blessing and a curse. So talk to me about the dangers of being typecast as an artist (laughs) well i see it in the art world where you're expected to push out a certain product and that's the product that you push out and i have a tendency to switch and maneuver around things just to kind of avoid being that and quite honestly it's probably based on survival too it's you know people ask me could you do caricatures well i can now you know (laughs) (laughs) Can you do a magazine cover? Sure, I could do that. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of it has to do with projects that come to me and uh, just being able to say yes to projects that I'm, you know, are going to be a challenge, aren't something that I'm very comfortable in. I remember when you did your master's degree, you invented this whole Uh, other character. You even had Uh a friend that would bring the work into the gallery and be kind of obnoxious. Um, And it was so different than your work. And that whole thing was about escaping typecast, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And it was looking back on it years later, which is what you have to do when you go through a Harrison Bergeron experience, (laughs) you know, And sorry that you were there for that, too. (laughs) You know, sometimes you just look back on it and like five years later, you're like, ah, yes. You have a client that's like, could you do uh, artwork based on the mythologies according to the theories of Carl Jung? And you're like, okay, yeah, sure, I could do that. And then he brings you a stack of books all about this mythology, Jung Gary, and, and then you start reading it and you're like, okay, so that master's degree, if you're looking at some of that philosophy of the male masculine side, you have your lover, your warrior, your king, and your magician. And you have to be really well balanced between all of these things. And I've worked on this art piece. It's this mandala that I made for a professor at the university. And the Harrison Bergeron masterwork was way deep in that magic era. It was very unbalanced. 
and really uncomfortable territory for me, which is something that I needed to explore, but was a nice place to get out of. Three years in that was a little too long. It needed to be well balanced. Yeah, I, I was ready for it to end. <laughs> <laughs> I hated Harrison Bergeron. I know, I know, and I and I'm sorry, but he, <laughs> you know, and I've lost him. I lost him to the world of ham sanity. There's a whole another thing that's taken its place, and it's in reality, unfortunately. So yes, I've gotten away from that artwork, but it was a really interesting way to look at artwork and art history, and I learned a whole lot from it. Um, probably would do it differently now. Great. <laughs> <laughs> the reality for all but a few artists is that no matter your talent, sales of your arts are rarely going to pay your mortgage, put food on the table and your kids through school. So it's a side gig for most people, but not their main hustle. And most artists have to choose what they're going to sacrifice, working full time as an artist or having a family life. And you really tried to do both for a long time. I mean, how did it work out? How was that experience? Right. So I bartended and waited tables for a long period of time and balancing out the artwork and then the tips or whatever. And then I uh, went to grad school. And then after that, I adjunct taught for about five years. And that with the balance of the commissions, I mean, it's a roller coaster. Mm. Um, but then after I stopped adjuncting, I actually worked part-time at the Missouri Department of Conservation now as an exhibit designer, which I absolutely love. And it's a part-time gig. So there's always food on the table. It's just a balance of commissions with work now. And it seems to have leveled off. I have more commissions right now than I can keep up with, which is great. But it's uh, the problem is I have trouble keeping up with them because I'm also working another 30 hours a week at the department. I mean, I think a lot of artists augment their art production time by teaching as you did at DEMU for a while. So when you compare teaching with working as an exhibit designer, when it comes to scratching that artistic itch, how did teaching and exhibit designing compare with each other? Teaching is like you're constantly going over the same movements over and over again. So you're getting better at those, like getting better at, you know, figure drawing, uh, portrait drawing, classes that I was teaching. So it became kind of a, a routine and you know, anytime that you're working on the basics, I don't really care how good you are. You keep working on the basics, the basics, you become a better painter or charcoal portraiture artist. So that kept going and working with students is always kind of nice and, and refreshing. You always learn something from students. Um, the exhibit design is kind of a dream job for me, honestly, because I'm doing all kinds of different things now. I'm doing bright sign programming and touchscreen interactives. I edit film. Sometimes I paint birds. Sometimes I paint murals. Sometimes I'm designing something. Right now I'm working on a, a pollinator cart and I've designed a marble maze to a couple marble mazes that are going to go on it. Gears that the kids turn and match pollinators with uh, the plants that they like to pollinate. And it's this huge interactive and it's an opportunity to work on things that uh, 
that I'm constantly learning new materials, uh, new methods. And uh, I, I have a team to work with. We're only five people in the exhibit shop. And we have nature centers and places all around the state to work on. But it's just nice to have people that you work with that are also talented and, and bring their skill sets. So it's a collaborative effort. We're teaching, especially adjuncting, is, is very isolating. It's just you and the students and your class, and it's, it's a little repetitive. I miss teaching, but I really enjoy where I am now. So as I was ambling around your website, alleywayarts.com, I happened upon your FAQ page and your answer to the question, what are the artist's rights after a work is purchased? And some of the answers I knew that copyright stays with the creator, not the purchaser of the work, but a couple were interesting. So talk to me about the right to display a work and the rights of resale. Those were not ones that I'd seen before. Yeah, that's probably, you know, it's always good to, I'd have to look at that too. Um, (laughs) I have a friend who's a contract lawyer. And once you've been burnt really badly, you become really interested in contract law. Mm. And when I taught classes at MU, I would actually tell the students about invoices and sales tax and all of the boring stuff that I didn't get in art school because the business side is kind of, we'll just go out there and make it and then, you know, you'll figure it out. Well, it's, (laughs) it's helpful if you know what's going on in your contract. So one of the things that I just figured, Hey, if you get to write your own contract, let's put in resale value because people could buy stuff when, you know, you're down and out. And then years later, maybe it's, maybe it's worth a fortune. Right. And as an artist, you're not leaving very, you're leaving maybe just a whole trunk load of artwork that your kids won't know what to do with. But <laughs> you might be, you know, they might be missing out on an opportunity to get some sort of kickback from your artwork. Yeah, I, I recently just watched, and I don't know if you've seen it, the new documentary on Bob Ross. Boy, and how his name got basically stolen from his son, who... I think was the one that was the proponent of the documentary saying, hey, watch out for contracts and watch out for slick contracts. So lots of times you get stuff stuck in your face and you have to decide then. And I would just tell all of the artists out there that take the contract home. You do not have to sign it immediately. So the paragraphs that you have on your website about the rights of resale and the right to display a work, are those things that only you have or are these standard paragraphs and standard rights that exist? Oh, you're quizzing me on things that I put (laughs) in there like a long time ago. I'm not exactly sure which paragraphs you're talking about. Well, there was one about you as the artist have the right to display the work after it has been sold. So you could call the buyer and say, hey, can I borrow the work for an exhibit? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So that is a standard one. That is one that I have seen in other contracts. It's like, okay, you could buy it. but And then I have all of the insurance if something happens to it or anything like that. But yeah, that's just so that if the artist wants to borrow the work later on, then in in reality the the owner of that piece 
should just let the artist take it and, and show it because it would only give the work that much more credibility. But I don't think I've ever used it. I wondered if it had ever come up like the rights of resale. I think you say if a work is resold, then 40% of the profit, i.e. what the person sold it for over and above what they bought it for, is by rights goes back to you or your estate. That may not have ever come up yet. Why not? No, that has not come up yet. But why not? Why not? Right. You know, I've seen crazy stuff written in contracts. You know, why not just have something that you could put away for your kids? I've always wondered about that. I mean, you have these artists, starving artists in their lifetime. And then later on, their work is selling for millions of dollars. And only the person that owns it or the gallery gets um, the benefit. That doesn't sound right to me. It doesn't sound right. So I'm glad that's in there. I was, inter- I was just interested to see it because I hadn't seen it spelled out so clearly before. And I thought, yeah, this is something that artists should do because it never came up at the Art League when we sold work. There were no contracts with anybody. Right. When I was teaching the classes, I actually, I have friends that are law school professors here at MU, and I would ask them to send a contract lawyer in to actually talk to my students. And once these contract lawyers came in and started talking about the contracts, I mean, they spoke with such passion. It was like, these contracts are an art form in themselves, in that you could take any word and translate it however you want the law to work. You know, just signing people on like one one of the things I like to tell students is that when they're taking a commission, you take 10 percent down. That's you take 10 percent. You don't get that back. You lock that client in for a certain amount of time. And if you have the 10 percent, then they have a commitment. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten to the time that their project's supposed to take place where it's nothing but ghost. You know, you just get ghosted. And you you learn these the hard way, unfortunately. So, yeah, contracts. Well, it's great. And we could probably talk about this for the next hour. But you can find out more about the art of David Spear on his website at alleywayarts.com. And if you are driving north on College Avenue in Columbia, make sure to look out for his two-story painting of Blind Boone. David Spear, you always have so many interesting things to say. Let's do it again soon. (laughs) Contract law was not one of the things I thought we would talk about today. I love it. You're awesome. Thank you for having me. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, metalsmith Genevieve Flynn, airbrush artist Malcolm McRae, jazz singer Denise Times and artist David Spear. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!